Welcome back to the Evolution Pod Club. I'm your host, Jackie Seiden. Today, we have a very special guest. Very, very, very special. He's a force in Los Angeles and has made his mark as a director and a producer. But most importantly, he has made his mark on my life. He's the father of my children. And any of his accomplishments, I'm going to hold off on because I know they'll come up during our conversation. I'd like to welcome my husband, the Jason Weiner. That was a great intro. <laughs> Thanks, Jace. It really was. I feel like we should we should articulate that we're speaking across a Zoom from different rooms in the same house. That's right, because I wasn't sure how the mic would work with both of us in the same room, and I haven't done that yet because I've only been doing Zooms. So now I have the inspired idea to figure out that technology, but not on your time, your precious time, which I know we don't want to, you know, eat that up with technical difficulties. So one of the things I just wanted to start off with is honestly, your story about how you became a director is so fascinating to me. And I know will have such an impact on people because I'm always talking about following your highest joy, knowing that everything's always working out for you. And you did that naturally in your life. And I want you to talk about how you came to be a director and how sometimes you don't see how it's all making sense, but you just mm. got to trust that you're on your way. And then in hindsight, it will all make sense. So I think your story really is such great evidence of that. I was a super creative kid from a very early age, but it was channeled through art, through painting, through drawing. Eventually, when I was a teenager, through photography, simultaneously, I was always acting in plays I hosted a show on local television in Baltimore. I was writing too. I uh, was the editor of my high school literary magazine, Real Nerdy Stuff. Uh, <laughs> but if you hear all that, that's, that's it's writing, it's acting, and it's photography. That's what I was doing. And I, I didn't see directing as my future, as a thing. It wasn't a goal, it wasn't a dream. I was not Spielberg in my basement making movies about my trains. Mm -hmm. I wasn't that kid. And yet, as I pursued all of those individual disciplines, uh, and those were my passions as a kid, I was drawn to them so naturally without anybody pushing me in those directions. Um, my dad, and specifically my grandma, kept saying that I was gonna be a director. And this is from the time I was like, I don't know, eight, nine years old. For my 10th birthday, my grandmother gave me a Robert Altman biography, like a three inch thick, adult, dense biography. And I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, I was totally unappreciative. I, I, I was like, why, why would you give me this? Like, I, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a Masters of the Universe action figure. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, so, I now look at that book and I'm like, it's on our bookshelf. And I look at it and it's like a symbol of how someone could have seen me and known me that well when I was 10 years old. Not only is it a biography of a famous director, it's a biography of Robert Altman, who probably more than any other director is like a kind of an archetype for what I do. Grounded, character-based comedy with a ton of improvisation, captured on the fly 
with a ton of emotion on it. Like th there's so much about like what Altman does that I admire that I've sort of pulled into my work that my grandmother gave me this bi biography at 10 years old is like this weird, insane thing to look back on. Well, let me just interject one yeah. thing about it. Now thinking about it from this perspective that she obviously had the inspired idea to get you that book. She saw you, it made sense to her or it didn't, she just had the inspired idea that you co-created with her, that your yeah. higher self whispered in her ear, oh, this is the book you need to get him, that mm -hmm. you were actually a part of that decision. Yeah. I know it feels so good to be seen, but you were involved in that gift yeah. because your higher self knew your trajectory and knew what that would mean to you. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's all connected basically is what I mean, that there are no coincidences, nothing is random, obviously. So it's so interesting to look back at that and see how you may have had a hand, actually not may have, you definitely had a hand in co-creating that with your grandmother. Anyway, go on. <laughs> so cut to college and same thing. I'm at Northwestern. We both went to Northwestern. Yeah, shout out to Anya, welcome. Okay, uh, but uh, there I pursued the same disciplines separately acting, writing, photography. I was a performance studies major, which is like a snobby version of a theater major, combines a lot of literature um, and adapting literature for performance and anthropology of performance and that kind of stuff. Right. I was in acting classes um, and I double majored in art, specifically photography. So again, all these disciplines separately without thinking about becoming a director, though I did start to direct bits and pieces here for stage you know i did some short films after i graduated well i want to say how impressive that was at school because what someone listening who didn't go to northwestern may not understand is how difficult it was to study different classes across different schools so in order to do that you really sort of had to manipulate the system so talking about following your highest joy and really pursuing your passions you had to cheat yeah, you had to make that happen because I didn't, I was a theater major. I did music theater. I was like completely single-minded, but for you to really have these different passions and to make them. Well, make I love, I love photography and I wanted to be in the studio photography classes, but they were only for art majors. And I was already a performance studies major. Um, so I said, well, can I double major in art? And they said, yeah, you can do that. And then I asked a separate question of someone else. I was like, do I have to finish both majors to graduate? And they're like, no, just one of your majors. <laughs> so I was like, so I just declared an art major, got a faculty member to sign off on it. And then I took all the studio art classes I wanted and ignored the rest of the requirements of the major. <laughs> while I built the other one. Yeah, so it's like, when I talk to people about <laughs> their life and career, I encourage them to manipulate the system to their uh to to bend to their whims and desires because why not right but there are no rules we're so conditioned to follow the rules and to do what we're told we can do but yeah if you want to do something you can find a way to do it i love another that. example of that is by the time i was ready to graduate i did apply to film school i wasn't interested enough to start transitioning into directing that i applied to film school at graduation but NYU and USC rejected me, which is a great badge of honor at this point. I love point. that. And in the absence of that, um, I had a friend who was, 
I, I stayed in Chicago and was pre performing at the Improv Olympic, which turned out to be really my grad school and informative of so much more that I do than any film school could have been at that time. So I have to jump in again, yeah. okay? Because this is all just more evidence that in that moment, I'm sure when you got rejected from NYU, you mm -hmm. probably felt terrible in that moment. Or yeah. did you, or not I even no, I, I have the insight? Even then I felt an awareness that mm -hmm. I was doing it out of fear. Oh, interesting. You're like, oh, not, I should do this. Yeah, that, that I, I just didn't know what was next. And all I knew how to do was go to school. So I applied to more school. Oh, it's so great. Just because you're always, always being led and everything is taking you on the trajectory that you want to go on. And yeah. so- yeah, I ended up studying with this guy named Del Close, who's like the guru of comedy improvisation. He taught Belushi, Radner, Murray, Farley, and he died actually shortly after I left Chicago. So I was like one of the last alumni of the Improv Olympic that actually got to work with him directly. Wow. And it's so funny because I hear you talk about inspiration and he was... I mean, that was a, a part of what he was teaching through through improv, essentially. You know what I mean? Following, like, you know, his book is called Truth and Comedy. And it was all about being true to your instincts, to the moment, to what you believe, to your partner, and not forcing uh, a comedic idea or any idea in from the outside. It was about being truthful in every moment. And that ended up being so much more informative of like my worldview than I think anything I could have learned about lenses at NYU. You're just sort of blowing my mind too, because I think about improv, you know, people will hear the yes and, which basically when you're in a scene with a partner in an improv and somebody throws an idea out in order to keep the improv alive, you accept the idea. Saying no is sort of the cardinal rule not to do an improv, right? Would you say? Yeah. And that too is sort of part of this philosophy. That is a way of expressing love, accepting someone's idea, no matter how it feels. Like, let's say yeah. someone throws something at you and you're like, that's not where I was going with this. Yeah. But by saying yes and just taking on the idea, you don't know where it's leading. So you sort of take that leap. It's, a, it's funny now that you're mentioning improv. It really is a really good metaphor for what we're doing here, right? Yeah. Your focus is on the other person. You're expressing love and acceptance and you're going with the flow in addition to what you were just saying, which is you know, so an, interesting. Another really relevant sort of thing that you learn right away in improv class is that, that and maybe a lot of people listening have done this. So. I don't know, maybe some haven't, but you learn right away that the um, instinct to agree is difficult. Like you, you have to unlearn the instinct to disagree, which is has become your default as an adult. Whereas children in their imaginative play. And I, I think the way that we're born, we're born to say yes, born to imagine, born to agree. And somewhere the adult world teaches us, I don't know whether it's cooler or as a defense mechanism or it's out of fear, you learn to say no. And that improv, those early days of improv class are to unwind your instinct to the say conscious no. objector. Well, that's interesting you say that because in a social situation, you'll actually find that people are desire 
agreement in, if you're having coffee with someone, it's very uncomfortable to just be disagreeing on subjects. So you always try to find common ground because there is that thing of needing acceptance because, you know, back when we were cavemen, if you got left out of the tribe, then you were left to die because the tribe would move on and leave you behind. So there's this very intense primal fear and need to be accepted because I do think our, our innate sense is actually to always want to be agreed with. So it's mm-hmm. interesting to hear you say on stage, you're fighting this need to disagree. <laughs> that might be particular to certain people. <laughs> I don't know. I, I witnessed it being pretty universal throughout. That's so interesting. Throughout. It's like what you're, un, you're unwinding your adult instinct to disagree in those in that in the early going and you're trying to get back in touch with your childhood instinct to agree right to go along with yeah maybe there's like a thing of just maybe it's about really wanting to hold steadfast to your idea so maybe when you say agree it's more like an ego thing where it's like no my idea it's my idea i think that's right yeah yeah that's interesting so it's letting go of the ego well, that's another thing that I've, I took later on I, that I still think about every day when I'm directing, which is like directing is all about planning and prepping and having all of these ideas, right? Yeah. But improv taught me how to release that instantly in the presence of others. So I have to be super prepared to walk in to have an actor say, I don't think I would do that. Uh-huh. And then go... Okay, you're right. I think Pivot. instead, why don't we do this, or why don't we incorporate that feeling you're having this way? And that's why I always try and coach up we have the chills directors. Yeah, in this like extreme preparation to the point of being willing to completely throw it away because you know the part of your plan that's important and you know the reason that you develop that plan. So in the face of resistance or in the face of a new idea or in the face of diminishing time on set, you know you know the important part. You know the reason why you made that plan, the reason why you're shooting it that way or why you're telling the story that way. So you can reform a plan on the fly because it rotates around that, that fulcrum of like the reason why. First of all, you just use the word fulcrum. So let's fulcrum. take, let's take yes. a pause for that. But also basically what you're saying, just impressed, you're inside it. You're so inside it that no matter what anyone throws at you, you can adjust, you can roll with because you're so in it. You so yeah. know what it is. That's so cool. I want you to keep going because the, the best part is how this all culminated together, okay. all of these skills. All right. Well, so getting back into the biography of this all, uh, we were in Chicago studying in a Olympic and simultaneously, and this is an interesting dovetail about sort of manipulating the world to your desires. I your suppose. Whim. <laughs> I, I, I had a friend from improv at Northwestern who was teaching screenwriting at Columbia College in Chicago, which is a really good smaller film school in Chicago. It's actually gotten even better over the years. And I asked him if I could audit his class. And he said, sure. So I started sitting in on this screenwriting class at Columbia College that my friend was teaching. And in so doing, I got kind of comfortable with Columbia College. And I was like, nobody notices that I'm here. (laughs) 
know this story. Why couldn't I audit other classes? You just and start going so, to classes at Columbia College? So I started doing an entire course of film yeah. school classes at Columbia College, quote unquote, auditing. I didn't know that. Yeah. The only thing I couldn't do was check out equipment because I didn't have a student ID because I wasn't paying to be there. Holy shit. So, so you were learning like the more technical aspects of directing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I took their, you know, introductory production classes and I took screenwriting and I took a bunch of other classes and I made friends in those classes who checked out equipment for me and I made films. Shut up. Wait, yeah. I did not know this. Yeah. And I, I did an entire year of film school at Columbia College without- While you were film. doing Improv While Olympic. I was doing Improv Olympic and Tony and Tina's wedding. Uh, wait, I went to a Tony and Tina's <laughs> wedding back around the same time we realized. And I just really wondered if we had like crossed paths. Tony hit on me, by the way, I told you this, we were dancing at a party and he goes, what's your name? And I said, Jackie. And I said, what's your name? And he said, Tony. And I go, no shit. And I started laughing. He's like, no, 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 it's my real name. <laughs> Did you do it with a guy named Tony? I know exactly the guy you're talking about. Stop. 100% on blow while he hit on you. <laughs> Wait, are you serious? I never, yeah. Wait, really? Yeah. Yeah. I played Johnny Nunzio, his younger brother. He was in the show. The guy you're talking about, Tony, his brother owned the show. And they were like, so he was he was in the show for like the entire run of 14 years that it I was am there. dead so on the floor. Yeah. Yeah. We've he never asked me out that. and I was like, yeah, no, we, we good. <laughs> I mean, you were a smoke show then and you're a smoke show now. So I'm not surprised. <laughs> if you have to However, I also need you to know. He hit on everyone. everyone. <laughs> yeah, of course. No, don't worry. You can tell. I could, I could sniff the type out, obviously. Come on. I was intuitive then and I'm intuitive now. That's right. Okay. So get right. me to LA. Get me to LA. We're to LA. Years. I had the great fortune of making my dream come true supporting myself as an actor in Los Angeles, which is the dream for a lot of people, not having to have another job, really making your living that way. Oh, wait, hold on. You're being modest. So Jason was, um, if you, anyone watched MTV programming, you know, when MTV shot off with the real world and Jason became a part of one of the first actual sort of programming on the network, which was called the blame game along with Cara McNamara, they both played attorneys. They were representing couples, a guy and a girl who were in an argument in, in couples court. Also, he was in movies like Van Wilder. So a lot of people, when I'm with Jason, people recognize Jason on the street. He was a very prolific actor before he transitioned. He was had a very successful career. Go on. Um, I wasn't satisfied with that life. I felt I was doing all that stuff and supporting myself as an actor. And I got at a relatively young age, a glimpse of what I thought success was. And I was like, I am creatively unfulfilled mm. by being sort of a pawn on someone else's chessboard. Yeah. The illusion sort of occurred to you very early on that this is- yeah not all it's cracked up to be, that the things you think you want are not real. I was also, I think, sort of a jerk on those commercial sets as I, I, I did a lot of commercials. And, uh, you know, I was always trying to, whether I was always trying to manipulate the scene or the moment from a, 
outside of myself perspective. Yeah. Directing. And yeah, I exactly. was not in a position really to be doing that. And I was like, at some point, I was like, That's I got to okay. put my money where my mouth is yeah. and make, make a movie. And I, but I'm a, I'm a perfectionist. And I also knew that it would take a bunch of money to make it right and make it something that I loved and something that would be a kind of a springboard to the next phase of my career creatively. And so I was determined to find the right idea. I was writing all the time and unhappy with my stabs at different short films. And then one night I was at a party with my friend, Hayes MacArthur, and we hadn't seen each other in a while. And we hugged Hayes is six, five and handsome and charming and everything in life comes easy to him. And I'm neurotic and a worrier and I try and control things. And we hugged. Wait, you I'm, said how tall he was. Yeah. You don't have to say how tall you I, are, but you're much. Did, oh, no, I'm. I'm five, four on a good day. And <laughs> he, so he had to bend way over to hug me. And it look, we formed sort of like an odd parallelogram when we embraced and people looked sideways at us. And in that moment, talk about inspiration. Honestly, in that moment, literally a lightning bolt of inspiration hit me and the entire title came to me at once. The Adventures of Big Handsome Guy and His Little Friend. And uh, it made me laugh. And I called him the next day and I pitched it to him and I was like, I think we should make a short film about the dynamic of our friendship where this big handsome guy has no worries in life and he doesn't understand his best friend who worries about things. Essentially, <laughs> that was, the, that was the, the, the essence of the comedic dynamic. Even the idea of a comedic dynamic being the core of, of comedy storytelling was something that came from Improv Olympic and Del Close. That was the core of his teaching. And that comedic dynamic occurred to me. And we spent the next year working on a 15 page script that he would come over most days and we'd fuck around and, and talk about it and go over the same story till we were finally ready to make it. And the second we were finally on the set making the thing and we raised some money, we, we used a lot of our own money. I used a lot of the money I had made as a commercial actor. I, I was really pushing all of, all of my chips to the center. Of the by, the, by the way, I mean, that's scary, right? To take your money and make a movie when you had never done that before. Yeah, yeah. And you're, you know, you're young and you want to pay your rent, but it's so exciting because you just went in, you just, yeah. it didn't matter. You just wanted to do yeah. it. The passion was so strong. The desire was so strong that the fear didn't stand a chance that you yeah. blew right past that fear of the money, which I think is really important. With a lot of coaxing from my very crazy friend Hayes, yeah, I was I'm I was wringing my hands. I was like, I am spending almost my whole savings on this. And he's like, dude, you got to think about where this is gonna send you. you know, <laughs> this is gonna you're gonna be able to do whatever you want from here, and that's insane. It's a little bit crazy. And by the he's way, like, the truth is, even if you had lost all your money on it, it's still yeah. sending you where you want to go, and that's the hard pill to yeah. swallow for people. But like, yeah. He's right. You know what I mean? Regardless well, I, of where it goes. I had this fearless six foot five friend who, who had never suffered hardship in his whole life. Why wasn't he, he paying for it? He was. He paid some okay. of his money too. Okay. Okay. Sorry. It was, we both put in and he also was the key fundraiser as well. He knew how to get other people's money, which is a key skill. Okay. Okay. Yes. <laughs> So, so, and, and part of the reason it was so expensive, by the way, it's not that expensive anymore, 
the look of it was super important if it's going to be my calling card as a director. And we're right, this is 2004, 2005, right on the cusp of digital technology being able to make a good looking product. At that time, if we shot it on digital, it would have seemed like a home video. It wouldn't have, been, so we were shooting on 16 millimeter film, which meant it was expensive. That, yeah. That's why it costs so much. So, I mean, relatively speaking. Right. Yeah. I think the total budget was in the neighborhood of like about 25 grand. I mean, you were 28 years old? 29 when we were filming. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It was, yeah. It was like my it's whole a lot of money. It's a yeah, lot of money exactly. for anyone. And it's yeah, exactly. certainly a lot of money for a kid. Yeah. So, and, and I just also want to point out like the whole thing, like for people that like, I think there's this pressure nowadays for it to like to know what you want to do like very early in life. I mean, that's why I use that Spielberg example. People hold that up. It's like he knew he wanted to be a director from the time he was seven years old. And I think parents pressure their kids to find that. Schools pressure the kids to get on a track that leads them towards a career. And the entire, I think, lesson of my story is that there's great value in not knowing. Mm, I love that. I love that. I, I didn't know. And so I studied all of these disciplines and we're heading towards the moment that that pays off. In fact, I'm at it right now. I'm 29 years old. I had never really directed anything of any scale, bits and pieces here and there. I've learned things along the way. I studied acting, writing, photography. And the second I was behind the monitors, really directing a production at scale, I was like, holy shit, I know how to do this. Mm. And I felt like I was in the matrix. Mm. In that moment, information was being downloaded to me or in your language channeled through me. I had never done it before and I knew what to do. And oh. it, it was an insane feeling. Oh, the chills, the heavens part, the angels sing, hallelujah. It's so exciting. But you didn't know. And that's the best part. You were comfortable enough in the not knowing, but just following your passions and your joys and your interests going wherever this leads. I, it's so important and you can do it at any point in your life. You don't have to be a kid. You can do it as an adult. I'm sort of doing it right now. So then Jason, just so you all know, Jason went on to direct the pilot and first season of a, a little show called Modern Family. You may have heard of it. You may not have. Just kidding. You've definitely heard of it. it was, and I will tell you that I remember seeing that pilot and I called everyone I knew. And I specifically remember calling my parents and saying, you have to see this show. This show is, I, I've never seen anything like it. Years tell later. You the, the perspective relevant thing about that pilot. Yeah, I, please. So, you know, I directed a bunch of things between the short film and the pilot modern family and this none of them friend. went you know what i mean they were what do they call them you know moral moral victories like <laughs> you you move forward you do well at something you impress some people but it doesn't actually lead to the thing you hope which is like a show getting on the air so i directed some do it yourself pilots some things that i wrote myself some something somebody else wrote they got bigger and bigger but none of them went the biggest of them was a pilot that i wrote and directed for abc called this might hurt which I joke, like, don't ever title something how you might feel about it later. And you also have told me, don't make it prophetic. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so really good <laughs> advice. <laughs> so, so it was a thing that I loved so much. It was improv based. So it kind of like Curb Your Enthusiasm, but it was going to be for broadcast television. I was sort of like doing something that hopefully had the crackle of, of live improvised comedy, but had a story that drove forward and worked within the context of broadcast. And it felt really new and different. And um, I loved it. And it was picked up for 13 episodes on ABC for summer because it was sort of experimental. And this was right when the economy was melting down in 2008. And the show was picked up like on a Wednesday. And on Thursday morning, they called and said, we changed our mind. We're not going to do it. Disney is having to lay off 500 people in the course of this economic meltdown, and it doesn't play well in the trades for us to announce this this experimental comedy in the midst of this economic meltdown. Talk about a manifestation event, like what you went through after The biggest heartbreak of my career thus far, because I had spent years, in fact, the writer strike had happened in the midst of me developing This Might Hurt. So it looked like it wasn't going to happen. It was on pause for a whole year. And somehow we muscled it back to life and we got to make it and, and we loved it. And everybody involved was so close and it felt magical and ABC loved it. And it felt like it was going to go. And then circumstances outside of us crushed it and it didn't go and I was heartbroken. And somewhere in the course of it almost going, I had met with these two showrunners, Steve Levitan and Chris Lloyd about their family comedy, which at the time was called My American Family. And I had a meeting to direct it just in case This Might Hurt didn't go. They had seen the pilot of This Might Hurt and that's why they wanted to meet with me. At the time, you have to understand that family comedy was deeply uncool. There wasn't a single family comedy across all of television except for According to Jim on ABC. Wow. Steve Levitan and Chris Lloyd had just come off of a, a failure on Fox called Back to You, a one, one year show that was actually great, but didn't work or they changed their minds. And so they, they were in a place where everybody was questioning them perhaps and family comedy was uncool. And I met with them in the context of, hey, I think my show is gonna go. And they were saying, hey, we hear your show is gonna go, but just in case it doesn't, would you consider directing this thing? And I was like, it's great to meet you guys. I see your shelves of Emmys. I admire you. I'm really excited to meet you, but I think my show is gonna go. So they knew of you because of This Might Hurt. Yeah, that's right. And then you were only able to do it because This Might Hurt didn't go. The morning we got that call about changing their mind on the 13 episode order, I called Steve Levitan and I was like, hey, it looks like the show isn't going to go. Do you still have, do you still want me to direct My American Family? And he said, we've been holding the job open for you. Oh my God. Your greatest heartbreak. Yeah. Led into this biggest opportunity. Of that afternoon career. I was in the office starting to prep on this seemingly uncool family (laughs) comedy. And I was bummed about it. Right. I was like, my really cool boundary breaking improv based show didn't go. And now I have to do this family comedy. 
I'll find a way to try and make it cool or funny. I, I don't know. I was bummed out about it. And they thought of you because of that cool show you were doing. Yeah. Oh my God. It's so perfect. <laughs> Truly. It's like so designed for it's It's so epic in proportion. Yeah. It seems in retrospect, totally meant to be. And of course I came to love Steve and Chris as partners. I came to love the cast. I came to love the project. I came to invest myself in the, in the moments I, I, I remember the big moment that everybody talks about in the pilot, the Lion King reveal of baby Lily. And I remember being on the set and like the chaos of that and trying to orchestrate that moment and be couldn't, couldn't have felt sort of more in it and more inspired by that moment. And so far removed from that moment, that low moment where my, my other thing didn't go that it, yeah, you look back on it and it's hard not to see some grand design. Well, what's so amazing about it is that you really were acting on so much inspiration leading up and you were really open. And it seems like because of your experience with this might hurt, you were just in that flow that you're loving everybody, you're having a good time. And when you are in that flow, things flow to you, no matter what it looks like. And this is not something that happens often for people who are not in the television business. If you get picked up for a show from a network, your show's going. If you get that call, it's happening. So it's not a, a common occurrence to then get a call the next day saying, oops, no, we're not going to do it actually. And so what's so crazy is that the flow kept going and it kept bringing you more and more and more abundance, but you weren't looking at it for the abundance because you were in it for the exciting part of changing the game and the camaraderie and the community and the people and the connections and the work. Right. And so you weren't doing this might hurt thinking I'm going to do this because I want to get an Emmy and I'm going to do this because I want like huge success and be a name in everyone's household. I don't think that's not what it was about. Honestly, absolutely not. And that's the thing I sort of, that's, that's the thing that's so sort of seductive about this business is that there's all this, you know, notoriety associated with it. And that drives some people. And I, I try and tell people like, if you're in it for that, you're ultimately going to be disappointed. Yeah, you because what... it's, it, that's just not how the laws of the universe work anyway. Yeah, yeah. You were in it in this, like you said, there was a, the writer's strike. So you were just so excited to get the thing back on track. Yeah. And then what happened? You ended up getting an Emmy Award for another show that was a huge breakout, unlike the TV world had seen. It's really sort of, more evidence about where your focus is. And now listen, I'm sure after that, it's really hard to not think about that. You think about like rock stars or bands that have um, huge debut albums where they're just in the garage, right? Like making music or going to small clubs and they get discovered and they're just super psyched and they have no expectation of these huge debut albums. And then all of a sudden after the awards and that you said the notoriety, then getting into the studio to do a second album now, suddenly you have all this other pressure and focus and it's not the same. So you'll see a lot of people sort of suffer in their sophomore album. So it's, it's a similar thing. How do you maintain that focus on the joys and the passion and the 
the love of what you do as opposed to the accolades and the awards. It's that seem it's tricky, right? It is. There's always a balance. It's not wrong to have ambition. That is contributes to your drive, uh, contributes to success, certainly. But I, it's never, at least for me, been the primary drive. I am completely taken with doing the thing, making something. I love it. Go back to the hours after I tricked my way into being a double art major at Northwestern. Right. I spent hours and hours in the dark room making photographs and that that was my escape. That was my well, that's how you know transported me. Yeah. When you're when you're losing track of time, that's how you know you're in your passion. But you know, listen, you've gone since then, you make television every year. You have a new show. Every year you make a tons of sales. You've got stuff on the air. You've had an incredible success, but you know, I don't see, we don't define success that way anymore. Right. That's not how we define it. We define it by how we feel. It's a feeling reality and you're always yeah. feeling something and how you're feeling really is all that matters. Yeah. And of course, the way you feel is informed by your thoughts and beliefs. So simply put success is the ability to shift from the belief that you're a victim to circumstance, to conditions, to the whims of others into the belief that you really are the creator of it all. And that everything that happens in your life is happening for you and is leading you and is always working out, even when it doesn't feel that way. Yeah. If you can shift from that perspective of the victim to the creator and add a little love to your reality by doing so, that is success. I, I would like to actually pivot because- I'm excited for your pivot. Yeah. Well, something that strikes me about you specifically that maybe other people may not know about you, because um, I would say most people don't know you the way <laughs> your wife knows you. I would put that out there. I, I think that's true. Is that fair? Um, yeah. Listen, no one knows you the way anyone else knows you because you're a different version of yourself to everyone in your life anyway. So no one knows you the same way your kids know you or your mom knows you or anyone. But, you know, I have been on this journey of self-discovery. I've, I've sort of um, taken on this spiritual work. I love it so much. I'm super passionate about it. It's really informed the way I view the world. But as much as I'm doing this and I'm meditating and I'm, I've, I've, changed completely my perspective of my reality. And I know my perspective of my reality is my reality. You have always been and continue to be even more so now an example for me and someone I look to because you're naturally, at least on the outside. So I don't know your inner life. I mean, I presume to, cause I, I do feel you a lot of the time, but you're naturally one of the calmest people I know. And I look to you as my example of alignment. So a lot of times things will happen in our lives where something sort of trips me up and I'll come to you and I'll say, oh yeah, I fucking blah, 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 blah. Just did the blah, blah, blah. I'm so annoyed. And you're like, it's not a big deal. That person's just doing this. And that's why. And then I say, you're right. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. It's like, I'm looking to you for that perspective that you so naturally have. Mm -hmm. And I'm really grateful to you for that. And I'm really appreciative to you for that because I want that perspective. I don't want to sit in the problem. I'm not interested mm -hmm. in 
sitting there. So do you feel calm a lot of the time, or do you feel like there's a lot going on and you present calm? I think it's like 50, 50, right? I think there's truth to what you're saying that I have a natural ability to put certain external things in perspective in who cares perspective. I love that's my favorite. The big who cares. Yeah. And I think that that comes from my parents because my parents have that. They yeah. they they have a a great marriage and an interesting relationship where they have their priorities so in order. So I feel like I have such a great example of that. So to a degree that external like who cares who cares what somebody thinks, who cares, you know, who cares about that social event, who cares about keeping up with the Joneses. I feel all of that comes really naturally from the example I had in my, in my youth. Oh, that's so beautiful and powerful and true. But I think there's another part that you're giving me credit I don't deserve, which is the other part of this is that I've also had an example of, of repressing yeah. anger and emotion. And I do that quite naturally too. In fact, that part I know because I'm muscling my way through the end of Ozark and it's hard for me to watch for a million reasons. Other people agree that I've talked to about it. Uh, but yeah, uh, Marty, the character played by Jason Bateman is the most emotionally repressed character I've ever seen on television. <laughs> and he reminds me of myself sometimes. And it's like, it's tough and painful to watch, honestly, a character like expressing that little of the tension that's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's the other part of this is I think half, half of the time I'm genuinely representing the perspective that you're giving me credit for. And half of the time I'm representing a facade of that perspective. Yeah. The persona. Well, I know that about you, obviously. I know I, I I'm saying this for people that would be listening, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> I'm trying to be revealing for them. I'm not telling you anything. Yes. New. Yes. No. And you are, you are being revealing. I mean, I don't know how people experience you in the professional world, but I mean, listen, let me just reveal some more. I've never seen you've never seen a more loving doting father. This man is a crier. He's a mush at heart. His children are just the most important thing to him. He's so loving to me. Family is the most important thing to Jason. And he's just such a mensch, such a sweetheart. And of course, these definitions are absolutely limiting. You are limitless and undefinable. You are just have such a beautiful heart and a beautiful soul. But I do see, I do see sometimes- Hey, that butt was a little loud. No, but it's an and. There, but I do see. No, 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 no. Really that, that is separate. I was just, I was just horseshoeing it back to where you are. <laughs> there is no but. He truly is the gentlest, most loving, doting. He's a father. Anyway, you are. I mean, you, you are. I, I can't so imagine. Have to make a transition here, and it'll be a but. Oh, and okay. And I, as your wife, and your, and you know, you're my best friend. I see you taking in input, input, input from your day at work, from your kids, from me, from just stuff going on and then have very little output. Yeah. And so all of that sort of trapped tension is yeah. somewhere. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so I, and I've been confessing to you lately, like literally over the course of this week that yeah. I've been stomping around and feeling angry randomly and like, I, I, it's because I'm in this pivotal moment at work 
and I'm under a ton of pressure. And yet I don't consciously feel any of that pressure. Like there's nothing, there's no like thoughts running through my mind going, uh, I'm so worried about X, Y, and Z. Instead, I'm just stomping around angry about other things. <laughs> right, because it comes out sideways, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And it just attaches. It will attach to anything and, and, it, and it has momentum. And listen, you know this from telling a story or hearing a friend tell a story. If someone's, or listening to me, if yeah. I'm, oh God, I think of so many times I used to not be able to call myself out on this, but if someone is talking about something that happened that, you know, brought up negative emotions and the more they talk about it, it's like, oh, and this, oh, and this, oh, and that, oh, oh, I forgot to tell you about this. It has such momentum. And then you're just on this train going 80 miles an hour. And it's like so hard to pump the brakes, right? Yeah. It's yeah. like, you're throwing a stick in front of the train. That stick does not stand a chance. It's not going to slow yeah. it down. Yeah. So it's like slowing down that momentum and finding ways to shift. I remember you were having a hard day a couple of days ago and you had a lunch that came at a very inopportune time. And it was a lunch that you were highly anticipating. And I remember saying to you, this is great because you need to take your focus off of everything that's happening. This lunch couldn't have come at a better time. Go and eat your favorite foods and just get dirty and nasty, right? Yeah. Like find joy, find something in your day to shift. And you I did. So much pizza and tiramisu <laughs> for lunch. <laughs> for lunch, you're just judging yourself. And you said you felt better. And then your next meeting was actually a it little. I, I, your conversation started it and, and helped me like calm down from the anxiety and pressure I was feeling. And then, and then I took your advice and I ate the dirtiest possible lunch and I felt good after that. And it led to a, 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 an important turn of events in the afternoon. Now it sounds like I'm trying to, I'm patting myself on the back and that's, no, you not, deserve it. But thanks. That wasn't my intention, but my intention was to just sort of shine light on things that we can do, because I really don't know many people. I mean, well, yes, we're very close friends with a neuro uh, surgeon and that's a high pressure job for sure, but everything is life and death. And as important to us as anything else is to them. You can't, you can't compare. And I just see the pressure that you're under. It's so interesting just to find those ways during the day to shift your focus and to sort of release some of that. Yeah. Listen, not for nothing. Jason does actually have to get back to work. And he was so generous at this time to give me this hour this morning. We hope that you do come back. And this is a part one. You are my husband. So you are somewhat obliged to come and be recurring and let us know how things are going. Now that we've all, <laughs> now that everybody's met you and knows your backstory. I, I consider this the launch of my recurring character arc. <laughs> I love it. You know, I know that for Jason, this has been a little bit of a mixed bag because talking about personas, you know, sometimes I give my best self when I'm channeling and when I'm on my podcast or in coachings with people, but then, you know, he gets the shadow side, you know, we're all real 360 people. And he gets the side of me that comes downstairs and is like, motherfucker. <laughs> and I always talk about on this podcast, how you say to me, do you think maybe you should go meditate? <laughs> And then I absolutely lose my shit beyond, I, I, beyond comprehension. Believe me, I learned my lesson. I, that, that was an early mistake at the beginning of this work that I said, <laughs> I, I would never, I would never now I've learned. Well, now, you know, it's control because my being in a negative state obviously does not feel good for you. So there's 
there's the need to, and this is important for everyone. The people around you are not you. And if they're in a state and you want to fix it or make it better, the best thing you can do is just try your best to maintain your own alignment and be that example that you, Jason, are for me and so many other people. So even though if it is your persona, you are really portraying such peace and calm. And the truth is there are times you really are calm. And like you said, you have such natural perspective on so many things that I know I struggle with, what people think, um, social media, saying no, there are so many things that you are my example for. And I am so grateful for you. And I love you so much. And I love you for all the love that you give to me and our children and our family and our friends. And mostly the fact that you make me laugh and that you are the best friend that there could ever be. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, this is Jackie Seiden, along with her amazing, incomparable husband, Jason Weiner, sending love.